In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Gospel lesson for today places us in the middle of events. Let's briefly review how they all began. The beginning we'll actually consider 15 weeks from today for the 17th Sunday after Holy Trinity. That's October 1st. The Pharisees invited Jesus to eat bread on the Sabbath so that they could watch him closely and catch him in his words. After Jesus asked if it were lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath, and after then healing a man and stunning them all into silence, and then after expounding on Proverbs 25 about how you should take the lower seat when invited to a feast so that you are not asked to go lower with great shame when one better than you come, but rather asked to come higher. Come up, my friend. And then after telling them all not to invite rich friends who can pay them back, but to invite the poor who cannot pay them back so that their reward may be in heaven. When the dead are raised and the righteous by faith are gathered together forever. After all this, one who was invited and eating at the same meal as Jesus, evidently impressed by the wisdom of, of Jesus, declared loudly, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. It was in response to this declaration, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God, that Jesus told the parable we consider today. That's why it begins with, he said to him. To be blessed is to be happy. There's a famous saying by C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, that gets quoted a lot. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Well, it's a humorous and clever little quote, and we know what point he is making. He's making the point that following Christ requires that one bear his cross. The religion of Jesus is not one that will pander to your felt needs and indulge you with the peaceful, easy feelings that worldlings seek, and which we in our weakness must admit we frequently live for. God may grant our days of gladness, true, but it is the seasons of sadness that teach us what gladness to look for. There is much suffering in store for one who forsakes the world that is perishing in favor of the world to come. The hymn stanza that we sang a couple weeks ago puts it so well. Who clings with resolution to him whom Satan hates must look for persecution, for him the burden waits. Of mockery, shame, and losses heaped on his blameless head, a thousand plagues and crosses shall be his daily bread. This is surely the point that the thoughtful C.S. Lewis was making. We do not embrace the gospel to secure our best life now. We embrace the gospel because the gospel promises our best life to come. The gospel promises our best life to come and gives us a foretaste of that life. This foretaste does not consist 
in wealth or pleasure or respect or leisure, although by and by we enjoy such things and look forward to them. But this foretaste of the best life to come consists rather in the forgiveness of our sins. It consists in the good conscience without which none of these other things can really be enjoyed. Without a good conscience that bears true testimony of God's good favor, there is no true joy or happiness on earth. There is only misery disguised by trifles, or as it were, a bottle of port. The earthly delights that unbelievers chase only serve to numb their souls to the pain and guilt of both impending doom and present vanity. The rich man in last week's gospel went to hell. His sumptuous feasting and soft clothing only masked the fact that he was already living in something of a living hell. His pleasures were vain. He had no peace with God. Every pleasure was a stolen pleasure that he knew he would have to repay. But Lazarus had peace with God. His pleasures were few, but Lazarus had a joy in his heart, a gladness that no mockery, shame, or loss could take away. God put that joy in his heart by persuading him to find his life in Christ. He was truly happy. And so are you, who by faith in Jesus are persuaded to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. That is to find in him the only salvation, the only righteousness, the only peace, the only joy. You are happy. You are blessed because you have eternal life abiding in you. This is happiness. You are happy when you believe Jesus' words. Because Jesus says you are happy when you do. Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't deny it, but he clarified the sentiment. More than this, more than imagining heaven as a place where all earth's pleasures are intensified. More than that, this happiness is this. To eat the bread of life, come down from heaven today who sustains and comforts and refreshes poor sinners today, who have no life or happiness in themselves. And you don't. You don't have happiness if you do not know that Christ is on your side. And you only know this if you know Christ. And you know Christ, and so you are happy. You are to be blessed is to be happy. Happy is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And who is that who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God? It is he who on earth lives already by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We eat bread in the kingdom of God not by getting to heaven, but by living under God's grace here on earth, by hanging on his words, believing that what he promises us as God of God and as the only mediator between God and man, believing that it's true, we don't get to heaven to eat bread there. We eat what is better than bread, where heaven is brought right to us on earth. So blessed are we who have heaven on earth, where the good conscience 
that we need, the peace with God we need, the comfort we need in all distress is freely provided in the gospel we are gathered to hear today. What comforts us here, what makes us happy here, is what angels will carry us up to to be comforted and made happy by forever. We've all heard a distinction made between different kinds of happiness. Or rather, instead what we hear is happiness distinguished from joy. As though happiness were some sort of shallow earthly thing and joy were some intangible heavenly thing. The distinction is important to be sure. But making this distinction by separating joy from happiness is really just made up. And I don't find it very helpful. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor, the meek, the hungry. Blessed are you when men revile you. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and guard it. When Jesus calls you blessed, he is calling you happy. That is the meaning of the word. You are happy. He isn't just promising something in the future. He's giving true happiness on earth. Don't let the world have this word. It's God's word. And it's God's world. He knows you. He knows what you need in both heaven and on earth. And he tells you that earthly happiness is found in taking up your cross and finding underneath it the excellence of a good conscience that defines all gladness, joy, contentment, cheerfulness, happiness, or whatever else it might be called, because underneath every cross you bear is Christ, who bore his cross to save you from your sin. The distinction between the joy of the world and the joy of Christ, the happiness of the world and the happiness of the Christian life, is not the distinction merely between things that touch the soul and things that only touch the flesh. No. The happiness that Jesus promises touches both. And the false joys that the world tirelessly seeks touch both too. They produce misery until both flesh and spirit tire forever in eternal death and sorrow. Find one pleasure that can fill you forever. Find one pleasure that has not already left you longing for more and disappointed when it's gone. As St. Augustine put it, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our souls are restless until they find rest in thee. The reason we should not make such an artificial distinction between joy and happiness that is, between true spiritual bliss and worldly delight, is because we all know that we need both. And God knows it too. Have we not all heard that earthly pleasures and riches can make us happy, but only the gospel gives us true joy? Well, I have. And it bothered me even as a, as a young man because it seemed quite easy enough to get that true joy. Believe that your sins are forgiven. Keep this treasure safe in your heart. Know where to find it if you ever need it. And your future will be safe in heaven. That's joy. 
Easy enough. In the meantime, well, I want what you all want. I want to be happy. And the quest for temporary happiness ends up requiring the bulk of our ambitions and thoughts. This is why I don't like conceding the word happy to such things. It's not enough that true joy belongs to the Christian soul. No, so does true happiness. This is our word because it is God's world and he is our God. We have died to this world, not merely to leave it. We have died to this world so as not to be deceived by it as long as we live in it. And we live in it. So as long as we live in this world, we possess in Christ everything that makes us happy, both here and yonder. You are not here in church to find joy and there in your real life to find happiness. You find both here and neither out there. Not to contradict the good point that C.S. Lewis made. But if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly do recommend Christianity. The distinction between worldly happiness and Christian happiness is between what is true and what is false. The distinction between what makes you happy and what simply doesn't. If you are blessed by God, you are happy whether you feel it or not. It is as abiding a reality as the forgiveness of your sins and the life that is laid up for you with God in heaven. If you have the favor of God in Christ who paid your debt on the cross to save you, if you have this, you, have, you may not be living your best life now. Since that life, that sinless life, still awaits you after you are dead and raised. But you are, dear Christian, you are, believe it, you are, by accepting the invitation to feast with Jesus on all that he gives you to know and drink and eat and believe, you are living the best earthly life that can be lived. It is a better life to make the sacrifices that God requires of your mind and body and schedule to live in dependence upon the word of God. It is a better life than the life of aimlessly pursuing riches that will only disappoint you. In our Lord's parable today, we hear those who are invited to a feast give various excuses. They are unhappy people. They decline an invitation to feast at the home of a good man because they think they will find happiness in those things to which they are more devoted. But they don't find happiness. They trust in what they feel, and so they remain unhappy and unblessed. And as we sing in our next hymn, Unfriended. The popular song about a decade ago preached false doctrine Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Clap along if you feel, if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you feel that that's what you want to do. Well, 
We heard what those who made excuses wanted to do. But happiness is not the truth. God's word is truth. God's word makes us happy. Because God's word alone is what blesses us with the best life to come and the best life that anyone can live right now in this veil of tears. God determines what makes us happy. That is why he invites us to a feast. To eat bread means to feast. It means to dine. Whether feasting or just grabbing a bite to eat, eating food is a big part of our lives. And there are three reasons that we eat. First, we eat because we have to. We need sustenance. One who doesn't eat cannot long remain alive. Second, it is because it tastes good. It is pleasurable to feel well-fed, and it is pleasurable to enjoy flavor. Third, it is because there is hardly a better way to bring people together. Eating is very conducive to socializing. To break bread with someone is to express fellowship of some sort. God, in his word, very frequently compares the invitation to dine with the invitation to hear his word. And it is not without great meaning that he has also left us the sacrament of his body and blood under bread and wine. This is what our Lord teaches in his parable. To be invited to a feast means to be invited to hear God's word. We go to church to hear God's word. Like with eating, there are three reasons we go to church. First, we go to church because we need God's word. Our faith is sustained by hearing the gospel, and it is starved and dies when we neglect to hear and learn what God says to us. You have to go to church to be a Christian. Second, we go to church, not necessarily because we are on the verge of losing our faith. No more than we eat only when we are on the verge of starving to death. No, but like with eating, we go to church because we love what we hear. We actually believe it. As the psalm puts it, O oh, taste and see, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And as St. Peter writes, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow by thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We hear the gospel not just because and when we feel we need it. We are not cars filling up on gas. We know we always need it. No, we go because we want to hear it taught and articulated well. We want to sing it and confess it and offer sweet praises to God. Third, we go to church because, again, like with eating, there is no better way to bring Christian people together than by gathering with Christian people to hear God's word and confess our faith and pray. Worshiping God is not only conducive to socializing, it is the purpose of worship. By giving honor to God, we give honor to one another. The purpose of hearing the gospel is to bring us into fellowship with God 
in whose unity is the perfect communion of everlasting trinity. The purpose of God requiring us to gather together in order to hear this gospel is to emphasize this communion, the communion we therefore have with one another as well. It's not just about and between you and God. It's about God and man. Your mediator is our Lord, the head of his whole body, the master of the feast that all of us here depend on, your Savior, your personal Savior, in whom your personal faith may be very strong, is my brother. And he's the brother of everyone here who gathers for the mercy that only Christ can give. It is never between you and God. And if it ever becomes just between you and God, how will you know whether you have passed from death into life if you have no love for the brethren? No, but we are to love the brethren. The excuses that all these men made, these three men, all correspond to the three reasons to eat and the three reasons to go to church. The first says, I have property and I need to see it. Like everyone needs property. And so he appeals to what he needs. The second says, I have a business. I have oxen that need to work the property, improve the property so that I, I can enjoy it. So he appeals to the flavor of what he needs. And finally, the third guy says, I have married. He appeals to home life. He appeals to community. He appeals to the purpose of everything we have, fellowship. And he doesn't even ask to be excused because it is self-evident. I can't come. It is by appealing to the self-evident duties that we have in this life that we neglect our duty to hear God's word. This is a clear violation of the third commandment that we may not despise preaching in his word but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. It is a sin against God. It is merciful of our Lord Jesus that he would appeal to the love we are to have for one another. We have all found ourselves in the highways and byways and the hedges, seeking pleasures that will not satisfy. We have all found ourselves disobeying God and not loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We have all wandered away from where God would call us. And yet see how the disciple whom Jesus loved teaches us and appeals to the love we are to have for one another. He would prompt us with a third purpose of gathering. He would prompt us to acknowledge our need to hear his word by stirring up love toward one another in us. This is what he appeals to. He appeals to our keeping of the second table of the law, that we love one another in order to direct us to our great need for Jesus who in his word forgives us not only our sins against one another, but our great sins against the majesty of God. 
To be sure, there is great danger in reducing our purpose of gathering to community and friends, or for that matter, to the enjoyment of worship. That is true. We are here because we need forgiveness. But dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to be here. We want to be here because we believe what God has given to us. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe we need it and we love receiving it. We love getting it even when we don't feel our deep need. And we love gathering with those who do feel their great need. Where Christ gathers those who have fallen into sin and who need to be here for dear life, for mercy. And you may not feel it, but you come here you come here to love the brethren and you find yourself in the presence of Christ himself who unites all of us here, both hungry and full. He unites all of us here to God, who is our true happiness, both here on earth and forevermore in heaven. We obtain it in the forgiveness of our sins, which we need. We enjoy it in the forgiveness of our sins, which we love. And we share it with the forgiveness of our sins that all of us gladly give to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.